And that same Jesus who was taken by the hands of lawless men and murdered according to the preordained plan of his father. God raised him from the dead. And it is by him and him alone that we receive forgiveness of our sins and life everlasting. I think uh, there's, uh, there's still a lot of uh, linebacker mentality inside this head. And when I sit through a service where obviously um, we have moved through a story, I mean, did you see it? The old hymn, the songwriter said that Christ called his bride to himself. And that bride sprung up and went to be with the king of Zion. How can that be? Because he was a blessed redeemer hanging on a tree. And so the old linebacker in me says just preach a sermon on it. But uh, I'm constrained by plans and, uh, and I think wisely constrained to stay on track. Because I think, although it's not um, maybe identical, it is the same message. This morning I want to bring you a message entitled, Diagnosing the Disease. And we are transitioning yet again in Ephesians chapter 4 in verse 17. And you, for you who have been away for some time now, a lot of our college students are starting to trickle back in. We've been marching through Ephesians while you've been gone. And we're in Ephesians 4 verse 17. And going to go 17 through 21 this morning. And when I talk about diagnosing the disease, this is what I mean. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are by nature children of wrath. We are enemies of the living God. We are rebels by our DNA. It's who we are. So don't ever separate sin to the point that you think it is a symptom. Sin is not a symptom. Sin is who you are. It's who I am in our very essence. We hate God. Don't church it up and give me some Sunday school answer that says, Oh no, but I love God. God is my friend. Jesus loves me. And I love Jesus. Not by nature you don't. You despise and ridicule and hate and undermine and seek to destroy everything that is centered on Christ. That's who you are. That's who I am by nature. So the disease, the dangerous part of calling it a disease, and it is a disease, the dangerous part of that is your, your mind may, in this modern mindset, go to some pragmatic solution to the disease. Take some medicine. When what I'm talking about is the disease is us. It's you. It's me. It's the sin that is by nature our very heart and soul. When the world talks about sin these days, it talks about 
Symptoms. It doesn't talk about the real problem. Divorce. Symptom. Drug abuse. Symptom. Cheating and lying. Symptoms. Those are all symptoms of the real problem. And Paul goes to the heart of the real problem in our text today. And we, we read this text, and, and you almost, I, I, I almost sensed it in you as Carlton was reading. You came awake in your thoughts at verse 25. Because you're pragmatist. You're practical-minded people. You're modernist. The problem is we don't speak the truth. The problem is we're thieves. The problem is we, we argue and bicker and let anger sit in our hearts. The problem is we have malice. This is our problem. And Paul would say, no, all of those are symptoms. That's all symptoms. You're wasting your time to deal with the symptom. Because as you deal with one symptom, a new one pops up. Do you ever experience that? And then you deal with the new symptom, and what happens? A new one pops up. Why? Because it's coming from the organic nature of who you and I, who we are. We're sinners. That's the disease. We're the disease. We're sinners. And so don't jump. Don't jump down in the text and start reading legalism. That's what some of you are tempted to do. Some of you came awake because all of a sudden in your um, false grace orientation, you heard Paul thundering, don't steal, don't lie, don't uh, be angry, don't have malice in your heart. You heard thundering like legal laws. And you said, I'm not a legalist, Paul. I don't appreciate you being a legalist. To which Paul would say, you missed it. You don't understand. I wasn't talking about legalism. I wasn't telling you, do this and don't do that. I wasn't making a list for you to accomplish today. That's not what I was doing. And then some of you who are, who are against legalism, you're guilty of the same sin that you get so frustrated with the legalist about. Because the rest of you probably took the text and thought, finally, something I can do. If I do verses 25 through the end of chapter 4 in 32, I'm good with God. See? It's the same issue. Your focus is on what to do or what not to do instead of who the solution is. The person who is the solution. So, we are not legalist. And we are not antinomian, no law. We are neither. Those are both wrong. What are we? We are grace-oriented, gospel-believing Christians. And I want to describe the, the disease. So let's move through the text here closely. If we look here at verse 18 through 19, it says we are naturally depraved and separated from God. Look at verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. That's who we are in our nature. We in our nature are depraved and separated from God. 
We are not cute little bundles of joy that are sinless when we're born. We're born rebels. From conception, we are against God. Our teeth are set on edge against Him and against all of His ways. We're children of darkness. We are calloused and hard-hearted. That's who we are. That is the disease. We naturally practice impurity. I want to take these out of order, and I'll tell you why when I get done, but this is very important. This is the order I want to take them in. We naturally practice impurity. That's the second part of verse 19. If you look at the text, they are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul often describes sin in sexual terms. He, we could get into all the reasons behind that. But basically, the sin of the world, of you and of I, uh, you and me, excuse me, get my English on. You and me is we are idolatrous. An old theologian put it this way. The human heart is an idol factory. An idol factory. That's why you can't deal with the symptom. That's why you can't attack the lack of uh, truthfulness in your life and think you've done something great. You haven't. You created self-righteousness as an idol. I was a liar, but I overcame it. That's why you can't attack drug abuse in your life with a 12-step program and think you've accomplished anything. You haven't. You've made the person a legalist. I'm now too good to do drugs. I'm better. I'm improved. No. You're going to hell for a different reason. You're a self-righteous, self-dependent Christ denier. You'd been better off being left a drug addict. At least you knew you were a sinner. I overcame pornography, preacher. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. You drank from a new well, a new idol. Anything you do in your flesh will fail. Anything you attempt to do by your own strength will send you to hell. Because your heart is an idol factory. You say, I don't want to be a sinner. I don't want to cheat on my wife anymore. I don't want to do drugs anymore. I don't want, you insert the sin, to cheat on my taxes, to whatever, to lie, to be dishonest, to have malice in my heart, to be a racist. I don't want those things. You're stuck with them unless you know the solution. We're going to get there. You got to know the solution. The solution is not to attack the symptom. It doesn't deal with the issue. We are naturally impure. We practice impurity, all these sins, the surface level issues, because we are greedy. We are, we are by nature lusting after idolatry, which is always in the Bible sexual. Fornication is outlawed by God, not simply because it's practically a bad thing to practice, though it is, children, teenagers, college students, you, you want to have sex outside of marriage? I can sit down in my office and tell you all the practical reasons it's bad, but the real reason it's bad is because you're portraying to the world idolatry. Idolatry is always seen as fornication or adultery. Sexual immorality. So Paul picks up that language from the Old Testament and says, you people are greedy in Ephesus to live impure lives. By nature, that's who you are. What else does Paul say? We practice impurity 
the symptom, the farthest symptom, the fruit that we can see. We practice that, move up to the branch, because we are filled with worldly desire. That's what he says in verse 19. Excuse me, verse, uh, yeah, verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, worldliness. Worldliness. Vain worldly philosophy. The apple of impurity comes from the branch of worldliness. I don't want to get the solution in here too quick. I want to diagnose the disease and then give the solution. But what my heart really wants to tell you is some of you need to stop trying to overcome in your strength your sin. You need to simply admit you're a sinner. Some of you have repented of all manner of ungodliness, but you've never repented of yourself. You've never looked in your own heart and said, I'm the problem. It's not my environment. It's not my life choices. It's my DNA. I'm a rebel. Oh, God, free me from me. You practice impurity because you have the branch of worldliness. You look at the world and lust after it. You're, it's sensually attra- sensuality. It's talking about attraction. In case you didn't catch that, all the guys got it immediately. Women, they may have been a little slow at that. Sensuality. The things we see with our eyes in the world attract us like a man is attracted to a woman by the way she looks. That's what Paul's saying. You in Ephesus, by nature, you practice immorality. You commit fornication spiritually. Why? Because you look at the world around you and it, its lust, its things attract your eye. You're a sensual, desiring person. We're filled with worldly desire that leads to impurity because we are covered in the darkness of unbelief. That's what Paul says in verse 18, the first part of verse 18. Notice I'm not taking them in order. I'm backing up in the text. And there's a reason I'm going to tell you in just a moment. Hang with me. We practice impurity because we are worldly Because we're in unbelief. The darkness of unbelief. Jesus said, I came to my own and my own did not receive me. But the darkness could not extinguish my light. That's what he said. John said it about him. The darkness of unbelief tried to swallow up and put out the light of Jesus Christ and it failed. Why? Why? We'll get there. But that's the problem. That's a deeper level. See, we're moving through this thing by levels. What I'm saying is, so many parents, so many husbands and wives, so many people like me, I'm putting myself right there so you don't think I'm just fussing at you. I'm with you in this. Our problem is that we wrongly identify a symptom as the root issue and we start dealing with it. Our teenager shows real signs of dabbling in alcohol. And what do we want to do? Lock them in their room. What's the problem with this philosophy? You either got to keep them locked in the room so they don't become an alcoholic 
Or you have to recognize that alcohol, the alcohol is attractive to them for a deeper reason. A more rudimentary basis is a problem. It's not alcohol. It's not sex. It's not pornography. It's not cheating on my taxes. It's not that I have malice in my heart towards my brother, or more specifically, I hate my wife, but I love her. I hear that kind of talk. I hate my wife, but I love her. No. You either hate her or you love her. You can't do both. But that's how we talk, because we're walking contradictions. All of us are. But we, we start dealing with the problem, don't we, parents? That's what we want to do. That's what I want to deal with. Okay? I'm confessing. We want to deal with the symptom. We don't want to deal with the heart. We don't want to deal with the root. We want to get out here on the fruit and pick it and say, I fixed the problem. No, because another one's just going to spring up. So, the, the, the fruit out here on the limb for Paul is impurity. Back up one step to worldliness. Back up yet again, and you come to the darkness of unbelief. And some of you have stopped there. You think, well, I'm unbelieving. That's it, just believe. Some of you are doing that with, as a parent. You know what your problem is? I do this. I can say this because I do it. I look at little Noah. I say, you know what your problem is, son? You don't believe in Jesus. Okay, what do I do about it? Dad, I'm not disobedient because I don't believe in Jesus. Okay, great. And what he hears me saying to him in that moment is, work up belief in your heart and do it. There's a deeper problem, though. If he does that, it will only mask a deeper issue. Unbelief is not the last step. Unbelief is not the last step in Paul's chain. Look in the text. We're ultimately faced with unbelief, worldly desire, impurity, and darkness because of ignorance. Now, I must define ignorance for you. When Paul uses it here in verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. He's not talking about lack of information. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about they have all the information but they choose to be ignorant. They, they deny the truth that is so blatantly obvious. They look at this grand creation all around them. This tapestry which God has painted His glory on. And they say, it must all just come into existence by random opportunity and chance. They're smart people. They're not lacking information. They just deny the information. They're ignorant. Okay? That's the deeper problem than unbelief is ignorance. The most, Heath and I were talking this morning, the most in our world astute and learned and academic people in the world are the most ignorant most of the time on the level I'm talking about. They understand quantum physics, but they don't get the simple truth that I'm about to show you right here. The deepest problem is we are, I missed the R, we are the enemies of God because we are hard, calloused, hearted. 18C says, they are ignorant due. Do you see the word due in the text? Due to. He's now giving you the reason. 
He's giving you the reason in the center of the paragraph. This is the way writers emphasize something in the New Testament. They bracket it with a lot of the contingent parts, and they emphasize for you, the reader would have heard it this way, they emphasize the main point. Paul bracketed it with this information. They're darkening their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. They, they, they are sensual and greedy to practice all manner of impurity. The brackets are that. In the center, the core of the belief is you're hard-hearted. You have a heart of stone. You're born with it. He's now hit the very essence of who we are. The heart in this text and in all the Bible most often is speaking about the center of who a man or a woman is. It's, it's who you are. Your will, your mind, your emotions, your spirit, all wrapped into one. That's the heart. It's the centralized operating system for the human body, human existence. That's the heart. And what is it? It's hard. It's hard. That is the issue. You're here without Christ this morning. Your issue is you. Your issue is not a symptom. Your issue is you. And you are a hard, calloused, which means hardened over, hard on top of hard. That's what you are. That's your condition. That's my condition in our nature. So, you can't do anything about it. You cannot change it. You're hopeless. Anything you do to try to please God will only callous you further and separate you further. Anything you work on in your life is only pushing you further away from the solution, not towards the solution. You leave church on Sunday and all the intentions of the world are to obey the law, to love your wife, to be productive at your work, and to cherish and raise up your children. you got all the gusto of the world because a pragmatic sermon was preached to you about how you could do those things. And by the time Sunday evening sets, you realize, I can't do it. Why? Because the problem is not the fruit, it's the root, as John Piper says. This world, this church world that we live in has turned the tree upside down. The fruit now is what we think is the root. And we're trying to solve all those problems. And I don't care to solve those problems. I don't mean to sound rude to you. But if you've ever come to me for counseling, you probably have felt this frustration. You're wanting to talk about the fruit, and I'm ignoring the fruit and talking about the root. And you're saying, I didn't come here to talk about that, Carlton. I came here to talk about my wife and how unlivable our condition is in our marriage. And I'm saying, I don't care about that. Not in, a, not, not in a disrespectful way, but I really, I don't care about that. Why? Because until the root is dealt with, I'm wasting time on the fruit. You're wasting time on the fruit. And I could be giving you a joyful, 
joyful, happy life so that you die and go to hell with a good marriage. So when somebody comes, and it happens, it happened this week, somebody comes with a drug addiction, they won't talk about the drug addiction, I call them a drunkard and say, the reason you're a drunkard is because you don't believe the gospel, and you don't believe the gospel because you have an unbelieving heart, and you have an unbelieving heart because you're hard. In your very essence, you hate, you repel the truth. It's not popular, but it's biblical. It's what Paul did in his ministry. It's how he preached. It's how he wrote. We need to stop trying to solve the problems problems, and get to the root of the disease, which is our hard-hearted, calloused heart. The essence of the new covenant is this. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Isn't that what Jesus said? Isn't that what the Old Testament says? Through Ezekiel the prophet? He was living in a world not unlike ours. Full of drug abuse, full of sexual sin, full of divorce, full of all the symptoms of the world. But what did he deal with? The heart. He said, the Messiah is coming and his solution is one. His solution is, he's going to take out your hard heart and give you a fleshly heart. A heart that beats and moves and has its existence for Him. So I've given away this great surprise. What's the solution? The solution is very simple. We need the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I don't care if before you walk through those doors today, you had every intention of going home and announcing to your family that you were tired of your life and you're leaving them behind because it's just too hard. I don't care if as you sit in this service, you're contemplating all the ways that you can get yourself a fix before the end of today. I don't care if in your heart right now, as I'm preaching, you're thinking of all the ways you're going to deceive your wife so you can look at pornography on the internet this afternoon. I don't care about that. The solution is singular. It is Jesus. That's not a cop-out. That's not avoiding the issue. The issue is hard-heartedness, and the solution is always Jesus. You can get all the parental controls... You can get all the programs, check your use, and send accountability emails. You can get all that junk, and some of us need it. And it's okay to have it, but it won't solve the problem. It won't. And you can, just like you can get a friend on a hotline that when you feel the urge to do a drug, you call them and tell them. It, it, won't, it won't work in the end. Unless Christ has taken your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh. So let's look at the text. Where does it say that, Carlton? Verse 20. We've been taught the way of Christ. But that's not the the way you learned Christ. All those things I just talked about, the disease, that's not the way you learned Christ. I'm assuming you've learned Him. You know Him. You see? 
His assumption is that you're in Christ. He's not going to proceed to give you a list of do-isms. He's proceeding to tell you that because you know Christ, your life looks like verse 25 through 32. He's not prescribing a solution in 25 through 32. He's describing an existence that is in Christ. You see the difference? That's a real question. Do you you see a difference there? It may be subtle, but it's huge. It will change your life. Paul is never in his New Testament letters, and the Old Testament is never in all of its writings saying to you, do these things and God will love you. What he's saying is, God loves you. God has accepted you as his people. It is unconditional. It is unilateral. It is based on his faithfulness, not yours. That's the relationship. It's there. Now, so we can define the terms of the relationship, this is what it looks like in real life. Because you're my people, you do not create graven images and bow down to them. You do not murder. You do not steal. You do not commit adultery. You do not dishonor your father and your mother. You do not covet your neighbor's things. The Ten Commandments are not a list to accomplish. They're a description of who you are in Christ. Just like Paul's Ephesians 4, 25-32 is not telling you how to behave. It's saying because you've learned Christ... Because you have Christ, this is what your life looks like in comparison to what it used to be. You see the difference. If you don't get that difference, then you're, you don't understand the gospel. If you're sitting there thinking, I just don't get it, Carl. It's, it's okay. You're still probably in the natural man. You're probably still hard-hearted. You still need Jesus. The problem that we have is so much bigger than we ever imagined. We know that Jesus is the truth. That's what Paul says. Assuming that you've learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, what? As the truth is in Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 8, You shall know the truth, and what? The truth shall set you free. In John 14, verse 6, he makes it explicitly clear. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Truth is not a thing, it's a person. And his name is Jesus. You know who he is. I'm assuming that's what you know and what you've learned. Because Jesus is the truth. You see, the fundamental need that you have is not to fix your problems. It's that God would take your hard heart away and give you a heart of flesh. That God would take you as his bride and say, come with me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What you need to hear is not a list of things to get done. 
but a list of things that have been done. And you need the grace of God so that you might say, it was done for me. That's what you need. That's what I need. That's what our children need, parents. I'm not saying don't discipline them. I'm saying when you discipline them, always drive them back to the facts that they need Jesus. They don't need to be good people. And it's easy to fall in the trap. Listen, I'll confess. It's easy for the preacher to confess, okay? You, you don't leave thinking, well, he thinks we're a bunch of bad people. No, I know you are, and I am too by nature. We all are. Every day, last year, I sent my, every day that I sent my children out to school, I caught myself saying, be bad theology. When you tell them that for years, don't be surprised when they're legalists or they're antinomians. They'd say, they try, in other words, for a long time to be good, and they realize they can't be, so they say, forget it all, I can't do it. I'm going to live like the world. It's funner. Some of you are so straight-laced, and you're doing all the right things, and you're going to hell. And some of you have looked at all the straight-laced right people and said, I don't want to be that guy. I'm going to be like the world. And you're going to hell. And the solution for both camps is not a new list. It's a, it is a new list. It's totally new. It's on a whole new graph. It's Jesus and all that He's done. And that being taken and applied. And your hard-hearted, disbelieving, sinning heart applied to Him. That's what Paul's doing with the gospel. That's what he's doing in this letter. He's not thundering legalism. He's saying, you know Jesus? He's the truth. Because you have a relationship with Him, this is what your life looks like. So I can look at my life now and say, my life doesn't look anything like Jesus. It's, my solution is not run, go do some good things. My solution is get on my knees and cry out to the Lord and say, change me. Crucify me. Live in me. We must not walk in the futile ways of the world because we've been saved by God's amazing grace. The final point is verse 17. The first thing Paul writes, I put it to the end because I think it's dramatic. Now this I say in testifying the Lord. It also could say, could read, now this I say and have this testimony in the Lord. That you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Why don't I say, I think it's better read, I have this testimony of the Lord. And the reason is, is because I think Paul's experiential in his statement here. He's saying, I walked the way you're walking in the futility of your mind. And my Jewishness was a lot like a Gentile. I was doing all the right stuff by the law of God, but I was a Gentile in whom my heart was. I had a heart of stone. And my testimony is, you can't do that. I don't need to be that. Jesus is who I need. Okay? The gospel is the solution. Jesus is the solution. 
Don't walk the way the Gentiles walk because God has saved you. And he's done it by grace. As, um, as we end the service, God is providentially, we, we, we do the Lord's Supper every, we do communion every last Sunday of the month. And often the text kind of leads right into it. And today's no exception. You say, I, don't, I still don't get it. What Jesus has offered you in himself is his self. It is, it is Jesus that he has offered. It is God that he has offered to you. That's the gospel. And he's saying, commune with me. Relate with me. Live with me. And this is a microcosm of that. What we're about to do in celebration of the communion service is, is, a, is a drama of the gospel. Jesus said, if you're hungry, eat my flesh. If you're thirsty, drink my blood. And then in the upper room, he applied that to his crucifixion. My body is broken for you, and it is represented by this bread. It is memorialized by this bread. So the solution to spiritual hunger is Jesus. He then, after they ate the bread, then held the cup up and said, This is the cup of the covenant. It is my blood. Drink it. Okay? If you're thirsty, drink from Jesus. And so we, years later, do what he commanded us to do today. We take this fully believing that Jesus' body is our food and that his blood is our drink and that nothing else will satisfy. And what will happen when you come forward as a believer in faith if you're lost and you come forward, nothing happens. Nothing happens. You get no benefit from it. But if you're a believer and you come forward and take, then you actually commune with Jesus in doing that. The Spirit of God makes the communion real for you. This is not just symbolic. It is a real communion. It is real grace to the believer. And so, what Jesus is saying to you as a believer is my desire is for us to be in intimate relationship. And he's offered this opportunity. And for you lost people, he's painting a picture for you. I'm asking you, I can't see your heart, but I'm asking you if you do not believe in the gospel, do not leave your seat. Don't come forward. Sit and contemplate. Sit and think. Open your mind. Pray that the Spirit of God 
brings you to repentance. So that next time you might take communion. This is not for lost people. It's for believers. So we, we enter into this time solemnly but joyously. Reflecting but celebrating. Looking at our own lives and looking to Jesus. You say, well, I sinned this morning. I can't come. Yes, you can. Come. Repent of your sin. Come. Come, all ye who are weary, and Jesus will give you rest. The table is open. Whenever you come, you come in real communion with your Savior. We come forward as a church and take the elements and return to our seat and wait patiently as all the body takes. And we will ingest, we will take in the elements together as a congregation. The table is open.